Welcome back. I'm Robert Louis Abrahamson. This is another Evening Under Lamplight podcast, and we are at Canto 31 now of Dante's Paradiso. I said at the end of the last canto that these were the last words Beatrice speaks in the poem. It's also the last we see of her, at least in her role as Dante's guide, inspiration, and teacher. The focus as we come into this new canto shifts to what Dante sees as he gazes at the celestial rose unfolded before him and tries to find ways to describe what he sees and what he is feeling. The rose is gleaming white, pre presumably from the white robes of the host of souls who form the Bride of Christ, wedded by the sacrifice of the crucifixion, both those who died after Christ's death and those before, the faithful Jewish souls who kept up their hope in the Messiah, and also, we have to suppose, the odd pagan like Riffius. Well, that's one group here. There's also the other group, as we'd learned last time, the host of angels. The angels are in constant motion, singing God's praises as they fly like a swarm of bees, going back and forth from deep within the heart of a flower back to the hive to drop off the nectar, and then flying back to the flowers to retrieve more nectar. The angels are doing it in reverse, bringing the sweetness, the peace, and ardent love to the souls in the rose, and then going back for more from the source of love. Dante gives us the color scheme of the angels, faces glowing red with a living flame, golden wings and bodies, brilliant white, whiter than the pure snow. There are all these angels flying all over the place, but even these great numbers could not hide the light from the source. God's love cannot be blocked by anything coming between. If it's aimed at someone in whatever degree, it gets there. Dante is now moved to utter a prayer to the Trinity, seen in that light as a single shining star, passing on joy to all these souls. Perhaps still retaining the echo of Beatrice's words at the end of the last canto, reminding him and us of the wickedness among the living here on earth, Dante prays for this light to shine down on our tempestuous life here. And how will that light do this? perhaps through the agency of this very canto. So we've had a description of the action, and a prayer for this kind of action to take place also on earth. And now we have Dante's feelings, but not directly. He describes what he feels through analogy. He feels much like those barbarians must have felt, coming from the northern regions of Europe to Rome, marvelling at the magnificence of the Lateran Palace, the home of the Emperor Constantine, before he gave it over to the popes. Dante has a similar delighted amazement. He, coming from the corruption of Florence, up to this heavenly region of righteous and sane souls, it, it strikes him dumb in amazement and joy. Or another analogy. Like someone who has vowed to make a pilgrimage to some place he holds holy, who arrives there at last, pleased with having finally arrived, looking around with excited, loving eyes, looking forward to telling everyone back home about what he is seeing here. So Dante is, here at the Rose, taking it all in, all these faces shaped by heavenly love and light, moving graceful and dignified, 
but also we must imagine he's thinking of how he's going to put this into his poem for his readers. Thus the general form of paradise, the forma generale di paradiso, Dante not having focused on any specific details yet. He naturally wants to share his delight with Beatrice, as he has done all along, and to ask her to explain what he's seeing. He turns to Beatrice now, expecting one thing, finding another. It's not Beatrice now standing by his side, but an old man, filled with glory like all the other souls. Dante is no longer with his beloved lady, but with a father figure, full of kind and cheerful tenderness. Dante's reaction is immediate. Where is she? It's not clear what the tone of this question is, but surely it's not panic. Probably, perhaps, just another step in this progression of wonderment Dante is experiencing. The other figure, he'll name himself later, but we can name him now, it's St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard reassures Dante that he's there at Beatrice's request to lead Dante on the final stage of the journey. And look up there, he says, over there on the third ring below the highest row. You can see Beatrice there in the heavenly seat prepared for her. Yes, Beatrice's part in the story has ended. She is now back where she started from before she went to Limbo to commission Virgil. Dante looks and sees Beatrice glowing in the reflected light of God like all the other souls in that rose, and with what appears to be a crown over her, what we might depict, I suppose, as a halo. She is up there, farther away than, say, the distance from the upper air which produces thunder down to the lowest depths of the deepest sea. You can't get farther than that, at least on earthly terms. She is that far away, but distance doesn't matter here, and he can see her as clearly as anywhere else. And then comes Dante's final address to Beatrice, incidentally providing a short recap of the whole experience so far. O oh lady, the strength of my hope, who consented to leave this place and plant your feet down in limbo to bring about my salvation, I acknowledge that in everything I've seen on this journey, there was your power and your goodness behind all the grace and virtue. It has been you on each path who has led me out of bondage to freedom, using all the means at your command. Keep this generosity with me so that my soul, now healed through you, can in the hour of my death still be pleasing to you. So he prays up to Beatrice, who turns her eyes from the divine centre and looks down at Dante with a smile before returning to her eternal contemplation. Now Bernard speaks again. I have been sent by both prayer and sacred love to help you reach the end of your journey. What is next for you to do now is to lift your sight up through this garden. Notice it's now a garden, not just a rose. Lift your sight up through this garden, which will strengthen your eyes even more so they can ascend the rays of divine light. I know that the Queen of Heaven will help us with every grace, since I am devoted to her as her own Bernard. Now that Dante knows that this is St. Bernard, he, he stares in wonder. 
like he says a country guy from some place far away like croatia who comes to rome to see the veil of veronica the true icon the veil that veronica gave to jesus carrying the cross to wipe his face when he gave it back to her an image of his face the vera icona the true image was miraculously imprinted on the cloth this man comes to see the relic and not quite believing he's seeing a true image of jesus wonders my lord jesus christ true god is this then the way you really looked it is with such wonder that dante gapes said bernard the saint famous for having achieved a taste of heavenly bliss while still alive through his contemplative practice my dear son of grace bernard says you're not going to get very far in bliss if you keep your eyes fixed on me look upward to the highest circles where you'll see the queen seated who is sovereign over this place and the point of devotion and so of course dante looks up focusing for the first time on a specific point on the rose he sees the light there where bernard has indicated a light brighter than all the others as the east at dawn is brighter than the dark western sky that's how much brighter this was or like being in a dim valley looking up to a mountain tip glowing in the sunlight so this peak is brighter than the rest one brightest point with the light still brilliant we must imagine tapering off the farther we go from this point this is the virgin mary though she's not mentioned by name in the canto only her title as queen of heaven and around her bright light dante perceives more than a thousand angels wings spread with different degrees of brightness as in a joyful festivity mary is smiling at what dante here calls the games of the angels and their songs a smile whose beauty delights all the other saints gathered there in the rose that's as far as dante can describe it if i were as good with words as i have memories of this moment he says i would still not dare to try to describe even the least of the pleasures that this vision created and bernard seeing that dante's eyes are fixed well on mary returns his own gaze on her with such an ardent love as makes dante's love all the more ardent itself and with that joyful contemplation the canto ends there's a little more narrative in this canto than in the previous ones there's a lot of description as we learn more about that vision dante had seen in the last canto the angels nourishing the blessed human souls with divine goodness fresh from the source there are dante's attempts to describe his feelings here with the three images of the northern barbarian coming to civilized rome and the pilgrim reaching the longed-for holy place and then the croatian amazed to see the image of christ on the veil of veronica in a way this expands the moment so that it's not just dante gazing in awe at this heavenly sight but it can describe the experience of every person coming from a troubled place to a beautiful peaceful haven between the second and third analogies though dante finds beatrice gone from his side and saint bernard taking her place a new character in the story ready to lead us on to the final cantos dante must now shift his vision upwards to see first beatrice then the virgin mary 
the true focus of this whole scene. The canto began with a vision of the angels feeding the souls. It ends with the angels surrounding Mary with their games of delight. But that's not quite the end. The canto closes with that beautiful picture of both Dante and St. Bernard standing side by side, gazing in burning love up at Mary in silent adoration. We have that opening picture of the angels in motion, bringing the divine food of love from the source to the rose. <laughs> but surely that love could be passed to the souls directly, without the need of the angels intervening. But it seems that God's economy favours more rather than less, like, uh, like a formal dance that is more impressive when there's a whole room full of dancers rather than just a few. There is, as in this case, more joy if, instead of direct feeding to these souls, we add the middle step of the angels, receiving and giving in a continuous exchange. And there's one more angle here, I think. There is the movement of God's love, nourishing the heavenly souls, and that movement is represented by the angels. This is hard for us today to take in, but in Dante's heaven, Every movement is personified. Every movement is identified as a living being. The world is alive, full of consciousness, ready for a response. Maybe we should experiment with this way of looking at the world around us. It's not just the light of the moon shining down on us. It is the living presence, the spirit of the moon, giving its light to us perhaps waiting for a response back, maybe just a smile of admiration. Those daffodils over there are not just flowers swaying in the breeze, they are dancing, as Wordsworth dared to say, giving us this experience, deserving of our thanks as we receive their gift. Look, this is not madness or fanciful. It's an attempt to embody the vision Dante was giving us 700 years ago, an experiment to see what it might feel like. To go back to that principle of the more the better, maybe this is what suggests the shift from Beatrice to Bernard. Here's yet another guide for Dante, the more the merrier. Of course, Virgil was the first guide, and there were a few others in hell, often just functionaries like the centaurs or Gerion, who took Dante to a new area but not because they wanted to, it was just their job. And then there were the demons who malevolently tried to, well, well, we don't know what they would have done if they'd caught Dante. In Purgatory, there was Sordello, a guide for a little while, and all the angels of each terrace. But it's been Beatrice all the way here in Paradise, until now. She's done her job and brought Dante to the highest part of heaven. Like Virgil, and in fact like everyone else we've met on the journey, with a few exceptions like Brunetto Latini, when her job is done, she just disappears with no goodbye. But she does give Dante that smile from her place in the rose, and Dante does get to send her his goodbye thanks. Why, though, can she not continue with Dante? Why does she have to call in Bernard to take over? There may be several reasons, which will develop as we go on further. But, for one thing, 
Dante is not in love with Bernard. He, he, he has to move beyond that strong personal attachment he has to Beatrice if he's going to take the final steps. He needs someone sort of neutral. And whereas Beatrice exemplifies the archetype of beauty, growing more beautiful as she comes closer to her home, Bernard belongs to the archetype of the Senex, or old man, the man who has accumulated wisdom over many years and thus knows the ways. He combines this with the archetype of the father, thus adding kindness and concern to his wisdom. I mean, we don't want a harsh old man like Cato at the foot of Mount Purgatory. We need someone here exuding love and gentleness, in other words, graciousness. Another reason why Bernard is fitting here is that he was one of the great masters of the contemplative life, accomplished at letting go of himself, rising up to the divine vision while still alive, and particularly through his great devotion to Mary, which we are beginning to see in this canto. We have those three different images of people coming from far away, less civilized, wandering at the big city, or in the case of the Croatian, wandering about Jesus himself. Dante makes the comparison clear that it's like his coming to heaven from Florence. He, he hasn't been exiled yet at the time the story takes place. He leaves it to us to develop this contrast. Florence as far from the ideal, far from the beauty he has seen here, far from the destination he's desired for so long, and so far from the face of Jesus. He leaves it to us also to make the further connection to our own conditions, so far in whatever earthly society we find ourselves in, so far from the love and light and joy of a heavenly community. These things are always there at the back of Dante's mind, and let's hope the back of ours too, or the front as we read. Mary becomes the central figure of this canto. Are, are we clear who she is? She is the one, born without sin, who humbly agreed to the Annunciation and to facing the shame of a child out of wedlock, a child engendered not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit, giving birth to God himself, the ultimate paradox. She consented to become the gateway, we might say, to the Incarnation. We first heard of her in Canto II of the Inferno. She is the one who, in her concern for the living souls on earth, spotted Dante lost in the dark woods, having strayed from the good path he had once been following. And then she set in motion this whole journey to redirect Dante's soul from being trapped in the impulses of his ego desires on up to salvation. She directed St. Lucy to go to Beatrice, who then went to Virgil to lead Dante back to the right path, down through hell to see vividly what those ego impulses are really like, and then up through Purgatory, with its examples of how to turn away from these impulses, each step giving us examples from Mary's life, and then, finally, up through the heavens. It's fitting that, having paid tribute to Beatrice earlier in the canto, Dante should now look up to the presence behind Beatrice, behind all of the souls here, all of whom look with adoration on her. Well, that's what we might say is the myth, 
marry as the archetype of the feminine energy accepting the burden that brings joy to others, the ultimate mother figure. Devout Catholics move beyond the myth to an actual relationship with Mary herself, praying to her and sometimes even having visions of her appearing on earth or sending messages. There is thus an actual exchange, and if you listen to the way people speak of it, it's hard to doubt that this is a real experience of relationship. Do we all have relationships with a mother archetype? Not necessarily a person, perhaps a book or an experience, something that we can keep referring to that brings the divinity down into our lives. The archetype that Beatrice stands for, as we have discussed, is the beloved one who leads us up to the divine. The Mary archetype, on the other hand, is, I think, one that brings the divine itself into our lives, incarnating God into our living experience. But let's not take this further right now. The next two cantos will bring us more about Mary, and we can continue the conversation then. See you in Canto 32. <laughs> 